Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. Sassy Specula. You're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello, and welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. As always, I'm your host, Adrian. I'm a fourth-year medical student in Portland, Oregon, and I'm specializing in women's health. In case you hadn't figured that out yet from the past six episodes or what this podcast is called, um, it's kind of my passion. And to tack on to that passion, I really love teaching women about their own bodies so that everybody can advocate for their health and actually have an idea of what's going on inside. As I've seen countless times in my life, doctors can have a tendency to bulldoze over your questions and concerns, and they don't really take the time to explain the whys, whats, and hows of what our body is trying to tell us. For example, a little over five years ago, I wanted to get the non-hormonal IUD. Now, anybody who's listened to episode one knows how well that adventure went. Anyways, I didn't want to take exogenous hormones, and I also wanted birth control, and I was potentially interested in donating my eggs at the time. So I wanted to try the Paragard non-hormonal IUD so that I could obtain both of those goals. As most of you also know, I have endometriosis, which is where the lining of my uterus has growths that are outside of my uterus growing on other organs. So when I told my gynecologist that I was interested in the Paragard and why I wanted it over others, he said that he would strongly recommend against it. He said it would make my already bad periods worse, but if it was what I wanted, then he would place it and we could see how it went. That was it on the information that I received about a tiny piece of metal going into my body. That it would make my periods worse. Well, me being a strong and stubborn woman, I said to myself, well, they really can't get much worse, so why not? Had he told me why they would get worse and what the mechanism behind that was, I probably would have understood and probably wouldn't have gotten that little devil implanted into my uterus. But as I said, I'm also stubborn as hell, so who knows. So while this is not the topic of this episode by any means, I'll do a quick explanation and then get back to why we're actually here. An endometriosis, that tissue that is outside of your uterus, it responds to hormonal changes, just like the tissue inside of the uterus. When you're getting ready to have your period, the uterine tissue swells and it gets all plumped up and ready to get an egg all snuggled in and cozy throughout pregnancy. And the tissue that's outside of the uterus does the exact same thing. It grows and shrinks with your period hormonal influences. So with the non-hormonal IUD, those hormones are at their max potential. There are no outside hormones telling your body to tamp down on expressing its own hormones so that tissue grows and shrinks as much as it wants, which hurts, as you can imagine, since there's not much room in the abdominal cavity for extraneous tissue, and that tissue then gets stuck between organs and muscles and stuff causing pelvic adhesions, which then cause a whole host of other problems. So had I actually known that I would be increasing the amount and size of my endometrial growths by getting this IUD, I may have reconsidered. That fact right there describes the absolute goal of this podcast in general. I want women to know what is happening in their bodies so that they can make the right choices for them. Since the majority of doctors out there are sure as heck not going to advocate for you, unfortunately, we have to do it for ourselves. And with the fact that men are basically in charge of our bodies now after the demolition of Roe v. Wade, men, it's really important for you to listen up so that you can understand what's actually going on inside of us. So, welcome to Sassy Speculum, episode 7. I greatly apologize for the delay in this episode. I can't even begin to tell you the absolute unexpected insanity of the past two weeks, but we're here now, and today we're going to be breaking down some common misconceptions and misunderstandings about women's health. 
Think of it kind of like a big FAQ. We're gonna be learning a little bit more about the whys, what's, and how's when it comes to our health. If you haven't already, please leave a rating and review on whatever podcast listening device you're you're using. I know it seems silly and it's redundant, but it's really useful for me and the podcast in general, and I'd really, really greatly appreciate it. Lastly, I am just a medical student, so nothing said in this podcast is medical advice, and please consult your doctor before making changes to your habits. I think that that's it in terms of housekeeping pretty quick this week. I ran across a BuzzFeed article a few weeks ago that was something along the lines of 20 things men think they know about women's bodies or something like that, and it struck my interest. After scrolling through the list, my brain was reeling that so many people don't have the basic knowledge about human bodies, and it got me thinking that a lot of women probably don't know some of these things as well, since sex ed is dwindling so incrementally because our nation's leaders don't recognize the need for understanding the body, And then they expect us to be totally fine when we unexpectedly get pregnant, but that's a rant for another episode. Basically, at this point in time, people who have absolutely no clue what goes on in a woman's body are making laws about our body, and that needs to change on many different levels. Unfortunately, from my current position, all I can do is continue the educational process. So today we're covering misconceptions, misunderstandings, and some interesting topics to better understand our bodies. Some of these things you may already be well aware of, and some of them you may have heard some of the basics, but you'll get new details, and others you might just be totally floored to find out. I'm going to start with the major basics, with some things that women supposedly don't do. We've all heard the adages that women don't poop or fart, but guess what? We do. And if you've made it this far in life and you weren't aware of that fact, then this is not medical advice, but maybe go out a little bit more. You've been a little too sheltered, my dear. But for those of us who were well aware of the fact that women do actually have the capability and necessity of pooping, you may have always wondered if your pooping habits are normal. Some people go 12 times a day, while other people go once every 12 days. But is that healthy and what's normal? Well, on average, most people go once or twice a day, but the rule is that there really is no such thing as normal. What's normal for me may be completely different than what's normal for you. What we learned in school is the rule of threes. It's considered, quote-unquote, healthy to poop anywhere between once every three days and three times a day. But what actually matters is how you feel before, during, and after your poops and if you see any changes. Like if you typically go once every other day, but then all of a sudden you're going five times in one day, well, maybe you ate some sketchy meat or just got back from a trip to Mexico or maybe you're super stressed about a project due at work or maybe you can't think of anything that's changed. See if it sticks around, and if you're able to get back to your norm quickly, then yay. If not, and you can't see a direct causation, it may be time to visit your doctor, as you could have a tummy bug or something else could be going on. Another thing, if you're running to the bathroom right after meals, this doesn't necessarily mean that something is wrong or abnormal. This is actually an innate human reflex that babies have. So if you're not a baby and this has always been the normal for you, your digestive tract just never grew up, and that's okay. It doesn't mean that you're pooping out the dinner that you just ate, and you're actually just continuing the movement of things through your GI tract. Your body is still taking the time to absorb the nutrients that you just shoved into your mouth. Don't worry. The only time to see a doctor is if this is abnormal for you and continues for a few days, or if your poop is runny or floats, smells awful, or if you can visualize fat in the stool. What about if you poop right after chugging your venti pumpkin spice latte? This is totally normal, and this time, this has nothing to do with your digestive system not growing up. 
Actually, the stereotypical coffee poops are a stereotype for a reason. Caffeine stimulates the bowels. Once it gets into the gut, it causes what is called peristalsis, which is the contraction of the intestines, which in turn pushes stool towards the rectum, causing you to feel like you have to poop, because you do. The last thing I'll say about poop is that you may not talk much about your pooping habits with your friends, and it may be uncomfortable when a doctor asks you about them. I remember the first time a doctor asked me about my poops, and I nearly melted into the floor out of embarrassment. But as I've since learned in school, especially being a naturopath, we talk about poop literally all day, every day, and it actually is an incredibly amazing clue to us about what's going on in your health. So while it may seem uncomfortable, we are asking to better understand what's going on inside of you, and it's not uncomfortable to us at all, and you can barely overshare when it comes to bowel movements. It's really all helpful. The next thing that girls don't do, fart. Well, if you've never heard or smelt your girlfriend fart, then she's holding it in. She doesn't have some magic ability to not fart because just like pooping, it's a biological process and everyone sometimes has to push gas bubbles out of their body. In fact, some research studies have proven that women fart more than men do. We're just a little bit more discreet about doing it. There's actually quite a few fart facts that I came across doing research. One, humans pass gas between 13 to 21 times a day. Even if you're not aware of it, you can still have little micro farts that are just gas escaping whenever it gets the chance. Number two, farts are actually flammable if they contain hydrogen and methane, which leads me to believe, and I couldn't find any information confirming this, but if you happen to have SIBO, which is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, will your farts be flammable because that bacterial overgrowth is either hydrogen or methane producing, which is how we test if there's SIBO present in somebody's body. So maybe this is a poor man's SIBO test? Let your farts on fire? I don't know. But Houston Methodist says to never ever attempt setting your farts on fire under any circumstances, so I can't accurately study this. Number three, according to NBC, upon first release, farts travel 10 feet per second or 6.8 miles per hour. And number four, lastly, the oldest recorded joke is an ancient Sumerian fart joke that dates back to 1900 BC. So the long and short, women do poop and also fart just like men do. The last thing that I could think of that women stereotypically don't partake in is masturbating. Well, they do. In a 2021 study of Americans aged 18 to 54, they found that 82% of women masturbate. I feel like I could do an entire episode just on masturbation, but it in fact is really healthy and normal, and it's not weird to enjoy it by any means. It's another one of those things that just isn't really talked about, like pooping, as it can be considered taboo or unladylike, but it can actually help you to learn more about your body and what you like or don't like without the risk and energy of adding in another person. Masturbation can also help you deal with stress and alleviate period cramps since having an orgasm releases endorphins, which are a natural painkiller and mood lifter. It can also help you fall asleep faster as orgasms increase the production of a hormone called prolactin, which induces sleep. Once again, I'm hitting myself over the head for not doing an overall hormone episode. It'll happen, guys, I promise. But anyways, women poop, they fart, and they masturbate. And now that I've covered the absolute most basic misconceptions about women, let's go a little bit deeper. I got a lot of questions from both women and men about periods. For those of you asking about PMS, there will be an entire episode on that coming in the future, so hold your horses and we'll get there soon. I promise. 
Much like pooping frequency, your menstrual cycle is very different from mine. Everyone has their own normal. So while I can share the averages, know that if you don't have a problem with your period, it probably doesn't have a problem with you. On that BuzzFeed page that I mentioned earlier, there were so many misconceptions about periods. Each man had a different idea of what it was, when it happens, where it happens from, what ovulation was, how much blood, and why it happens. And while there is absolutely no shame in not understanding something that you've never experienced, it's important to learn because at some point in your life, you will encounter a menstruating female. So on average, the amount of blood lost in a period is actually relatively small, usually two to three tablespoons or 30 to 40 milliliters per period, and it lasts typically between four to five days. But since most of us don't keep soup spoons in our underwear to catch the blood, you're probably like, great, Adrian, thanks for the heads up, but it'll always feel like a ton of blood, and I have no idea if I lose one tablespoon or 12 tablespoons. So what does that look like? A light tampon can hold up to six milliliters of blood, a regular holds up to nine, and a super holds up to 12. So add up how many tampons you use per period and multiply it by either six, nine, or 12 and see if you fall within that range. If you use pads, regular daytime pads hold five milliliters and an overnight pad can hold between 10 and 15 milliliters. If you're using a menstrual cup, then they typically have markings on the side like a Pyrex measuring cup, so that's relatively easy. Another quick but important piece to mention for those who don't use tampons, tampon sizing is based on how much blood somebody needs to catch. If they are light bleeders or towards the end of their period, they might use a light tampon. While others may have a super heavy flow, they'll use a super tampon. Tampon size has absolutely nothing to do with vagina size, so when Bethany Bird says in Mean Girls that someone wrote in the Burn book that she's a liar about being a virgin because she uses super jumbo tampons, but it's not her fault that she has a heavy flow and a wide-set vagina, well, I'll say it again, vagina size has absolutely nothing to do with tampon size, and a wide-set vagina is not a thing. Technically, the width of a vagina is two to three and a half centimeters, so sure, a wider vagina would be just that but it wouldn't impact the heaviness of flow or cause a smaller tampon to fall out. Using a super tampon does not mean that somebody is lying about being a virgin or lying about how many people she slept with or how many children she has or hasn't had. And also to clear up what I guess is a male misconception, women do not experience pleasure with tampon insertion. It's actually, in my personal opinion, a pain in the butt. There are no positive associations with tampon insertions, there appears to be some confusion regarding how long a menstrual cycle is versus a period. As I mentioned before, a period, on average, lasts between four and five days. But women are technically always on their menstrual cycle as our bodies prep for a baby throughout the entire month. Every month, we get a spike of estrogen, which builds the cushy bed in the uterus for the egg to snuggle into. Each cell sits on top of each other, kind of like stacking bricks, and then the progesterone comes in and seals it all into place, stabilizing the lining kind of like mortar. Once the pituitary gland gets the signal that there's enough estrogen and that cushy bed is ready for action, it stops pushing estrogen and it sends out a different hormone called luteinizing hormone. This hormone triggers the release of the egg from the ovary. Once we get this drop in estrogen, we also get a drop in serotonin, which can make us feel a little crummy. But it's really when we get the surge in progesterone after ovulation that really causes the PMS mood swings. This is because progesterone is associated with fear, 
anxiety, and depression instead of happy hormones like serotonin. So PMS is very real, and those tears are also coming from a very real place. Your body is coursing with hormones that are telling it to be anxious, sad, and scared. And it may feel like the world is ending, and it may piss you off when someone tells you that you're just being hormonal because of where you are in your cycle, but it's also okay to tell them to F right off because now you know that there are very real reasons for it, and they don't get the right to tell you why you're feeling the way you are. So back to when your period starts. You know that absolutely mind-stopping question at your doctor's office when they ask you when was your last menstrual period? And it's always the hardest question that they ask you. I have an app and I track my cycle on my phone and it still makes my heart pound when they ask me that question. So to clarify, the day that you start bleeding is day one of your cycle. And this is what they're asking for. It's not the last day of your bleeding or the day after you stop bleeding. You count the first day of your cycle from the first day you start bleeding and then count up from there. On average, a menstrual cycle is 28 days. So a little shorter than a month, unless it's February. But the quote-unquote normal range is 24 through 38 days. It's usually about day 13 or 14 when you ovulate. This happens when the body decides, enough with the estrogen, we have a nice and cushy area for the fertilized egg to land in, and you get a surge in the luteinizing hormone, or LH, which tells the body to release the egg, and it begins the journey through the fallopian tubes where it will meet a new sperm friend or continue its journey through the tubes into the uterus over a period of 12 to 24 hours, and then out through the vagina with the rest of the period blood 14-ish days later. Now, when most people think of eggs, they think of what they've seen before, like a chicken egg or an ostrich egg or maybe even fish eggs. However, human eggs are nowhere near the size of these eggs, which I am only saying because men on that BuzzFeed article seemed a little bit confused. So women aren't in pain during their period because they're busy laying an egg. Our eggs are actually about 100 microns in size, which is actually the largest single cell in the human body, which is kind of cool. And they're about the diameter of a human hair. So you could, in theory, see one of your own eggs with the naked eye, but unfortunately, if the egg isn't fertilized and is coming out during your menstrual cycle, it has disintegrated and is no longer whole. So they're tiny in comparison to other eggs, But in comparison to sperm, they're actually 20 times larger. Speaking of sperm, the male body continuously creates sperm throughout their entire lives, and they can do things throughout their lives that will either increase or decrease sperm production at the time. Like hot tubbing or apparently smoking pot seeds. I'm unsure on the validity of that one, but it's an old wives' tale I've heard around. This is also true with pretty much every single cell in the human body. They all regenerate, or they get cleared out and replaced by younger, healthier ones. Like your red blood cells are recreated and destroyed every 180 days, or skeletal cells last a little more than a decade. All of a woman's eggs, on the other hand, are present at birth. All 1 to 2 million of them. In fact, while you're still growing inside, you have about 6 to 7 million eggs, But by the time you're born, you've gotten them down to 1 to 2 million that you'll want to keep. And while a man can hot tub every day for a year and have shady sperm and then stop hot tubbing, and then their sperm can eventually become reliable again, women's eggs have been enduring the same elements that you have, and unfortunately they don't regenerate. I'm not saying that if you hot tub every day, your eggs have gone bonkers, but every extreme element that you experience, your eggs do too. 
So you start with six to seven million, and then you're down to the one to two million by the time you're born. And then by puberty, your body has sloughed off quite a few egg cells, and you're down to 400,000. And finally, when you reach menopause, you're typically down to about 1,000. Your eggs were created when you were just nine weeks old as a fetus, a little blob, which means that the egg that created you was inside of your mom when she was inside of your grandma, which is pretty rad and also terrifying because who knows what kind of shenanigans women were doing in the 1900s. This also explains the concept of generational trauma. If your grandma went through a period of extreme stress prior to your mom's birth, like the Depression or World Wars, Civil Rights, the Draft, or the Cold War, for example, that trauma was felt by the eggs that made your mama and therefore the egg that made you. And anything that you or your mom has dealt with will continue to be handed down the line to your kids and your kids' kids and so on and so forth. To my future children, this is my official apology for the shit that I'll put you through. Back to science. Eggs are so incredibly precious. It's funny how much women hate on their periods, me included. Trust me. But a woman will ovulate 400 to 500 times within their lifetime, which make eggs far more rare than sperm. Actually, in one single ejaculation, men release more sperm than a woman produces in her entire life. So Willy Wonka had the right idea with the golden eggs, and we should probably value them a little bit higher. Just growing up with lady parts and experiencing all of the lovely things that they have to offer, I've heard quite a few things over the years that I've always wondered the validity on. So I took a deep dive into some of these things for both myself and you guys. Here goes. Number one, if you bathe, swim, or submerge yourself in some way, at least waist deep in water when you're on your period, your flow will stop. We all know that women's swimsuits are not meant for pads, and we all know that one person who couldn't go to the 8th grade pool party because they were on their period and didn't know how to put a tampon in yet. And let's be real, tampon strings can also so easily sneak out of that teeny tiny crotch, which of course everyone will see. So to make things clear, nothing will make your period disappear except for hormonal disturbances. But if you take yourself back to your high school or college physics classes, which I seriously only passed because I had a friend do my homework for me, perks of living in the engineering dorm, you might remember that water has way more resistance than air and liquids exert an upward force that can counter the weight of an object. This is why some things float and others don't. So when you're in the water, the pressure of the water surrounding the vagina can exceed the pressure of the blood flowing out of the vagina making the flow stop. However, the moment that you get out of the water, if you've decided to go sans protection, your flow will immediately start exiting again and you could stain your swimsuit, which unfortunately is a lot more noticeable than a sneaky tampon string. One caveat, this theory only works if you are not prone to clots, as clots exert a different force than liquids and can still exit the body when swimming. Number two, if you do a handstand or go upside down for any reason when you're on your period, the blood will flow backwards, leading to retrograde menstruation, which leads to uterine tissue outside of the uterus, increasing your chances of endometriosis. I heard this one from my mom when I was a kid who heard it from her mom, but I think there was a little bit more doom and gloom when this was told to me. But when I was new to the whole period thing, and my nickname Upside Down Girl had to take a monthly hiatus in fear of my blood killing me, To put it bluntly, this is false. Menstrual blood flow has absolutely nothing to do with your positioning, 
and the body works against gravity every single day. That's how blood gets from your legs back to your heart. Menstrual blood flows due to uterine contractions, not position, and even if you're in space without any gravity, blood still comes out the normal way. So you won't increase your chances of getting endometriosis if you want to do a handstand while on your period. In yogic and Ayurvedic philosophy, however, they do believe that doing inversions can disrupt the downward flowing energy that is responsible for healthy elimination. So blood itself won't change direction, but I guess energy might. Number three, you can sync your period with other women around you. I don't know why this is like the funnest thing ever, but to be complaining with your friends about how you're about to get your period, and then they're like, wait, I'm getting my period this weekend too, and then you can commiserate together. I don't know why, but it makes a crappy situation better. So this is called the McClintock effect. It was discovered in 1971 and suggests that pheromones and other factors can influence and shift periods for women who spend lots of time together. And unfortunately, this study has been proven to have had many methodological and statistical errors in the analysis and has never been reproducible. The moon does have a pole that affects ocean tides, but there's no verifiable evidence that the moon can also affect the pole of your period too. And pheromones, it's totally possible that pheromones could have an effect on period timing, especially because pheromones mostly come from the armpits and the groin. But so far, there hasn't been any research to support that, and with modern-day society practices, we're washing off most of our pheromones daily anyways. So, I know every woman listening is thinking, but I've definitely matched with my period with those around me, so Adrian must be wrong. But over time, women will eventually match up cycles, as everybody has different cycle lengths. And it's anecdotal that you're much more likely to remember the times that you could commiserate on bad cramps at the same time with your roommate more than the times that you didn't. Number four, sneezing on your period is equivalent to a bloodbath. This was a very difficult thing to find scientific information on, so let's just call it what it is. When you sneeze hard, things fly out. Let's not talk about it. Number five, here's something that we can talk about. Period poops. With your period, you can have constipation or diarrhea or both, along with nasty bloating and nausea and vomiting and all the GI things that you don't want. Most people poop more when they're on their period. Why, you ask? Like everything, hormones. Right before your period, prostaglandins, which are the brats that cause cramps to ramp up in order to relax the smooth muscles in your uterus, and another area with smooth muscles nearby, your colon. So yeah, you're likely to get a nice relaxed colon, which means the food inside has less ability to firm up, leading to diarrhea. Yay! Number six, you can get pregnant on your period. This is true. You can technically get pregnant if you have sex at any point during your cycle, but the probability is pretty low right before and during your period. This probability is higher for people who have shorter cycles, which means that you're ovulating earlier in the cycle. Because sperm can live inside of you for up to five days, you could have unprotected sex towards the end of your period and then conceive four to five days later with your early ovulation. Bottom line, ovulation cycles can vary. So it's statistically possible to become pregnant while on your period but it is less likely in the earlier days of your period and the chances increase as your period continues. And finally, number seven, which leads us into our next topic, waxing when you're on your period will be more painful. This is absolutely true. You can totally get a Brazilian or a bikini wax when on your period. That's not the issue here. The problem is that it will be significantly more painful. This is because our bodies are in a state of increased inflammation when we're on our periods, so the skin is more sensitive. 
If you normally have pain when waxing, I'd consider waiting until after your period is over for your Brazilian or bikini. I've talked to a lot of estheticians about this topic, and they're trained to wax in all sort of conditions, but their one piece of advice, if you do want to get waxed while on your period, is to tuck that tampon string up there, as far up there as it can go. Being spread-eagled on a table with someone deep in your business can be uncomfortable enough, but imagine if they go to rip that wax strip off and your tampon comes flying out across the room with it. I truly can't think of anything worse. So moving on to a more hairy topic that actually quite a few people asked me about, pubic hair. What's its purpose? Where does the desire to be hairless come from? Merkins, waxing, and more. Over the past several decades, it's become very, very mainstream to prune your cooch, either with complete removal, airplane strip, or even shaving designs into it. Now, the condition that you keep your body in should be entirely up to you, and you should never feel pressure to change your hairy situation either way. But here's the lowdown on your down-low. Pubic hair provides protection against friction that can cause skin irritation in the area. I found it's described as a dry lubricant on multiple sources because it is considered easier to rub hair against hair than skin against skin. It can also help reduce the amount of sweat produced around your vagina. It can also help block the vagina from STIs, UTIs, yeast infections, and vaginitis as it's a barrier between bugs and the inside of you. It also helps by trapping dirt and debris in case you have debris flapping around your crotch on a daily basis. And it actually helps to regulate body temperature, which is an important factor in sexual arousal. It also traps pheromones, which are plenty down there due to the heavy apocrine sweat gland distribution in the pelvis. Our pubes hold on to those scented beauties, corralling partners to get down to the lady bit town. Back in the day when we mostly didn't wear clothes, our bushes were a sign of sexual maturity, and they sent a powerful social signal that we could bear children. So my main question with pubes was where and why it has become so mainstream to be hairless. I know in our parents' age, this was absolutely not the case. So I did some digging into the history of female hair removal. So this concept of women removing hair from all over their body is actually not a new concept per se. It can actually be traced back to ancient Rome, Greece, and Egypt as ancient Egyptian women viewed pubic hair as uncivilized and they used a sugar mixture to remove it in a method similar to waxing. I'm assuming this is where the sugaring trend came from. They also used sharp pieces of pumice and stones and flint to literally scrape off the hair, which sounds much more horrific than even waxing. In ancient Rome, how big your bush was um, was a symbol of status. The less you have, the fancier you were considered. And with how frequently Romans would go to public baths, I'm assuming it was the hot gossip to talk about other people's pube status. In the Middle Ages, mostly only prostitutes got rid of their muff, but also remember that this was a fairly dirty era, and pubic lice was a very real scare. But during this time, the general trend was to embrace the bush. Some women would shave completely, only to replace it with a merkin. A merkin is basically a wig for your vulva that showed up first in history in 1450, I assumed that people were replacing their own hair for a merkin because they liked the look of strapped-on hair better than their own, but it was actually used to cover up sores caused by syphilis and gonorrhea. So yay to the dirty eras, glad we're out of that timeline. In a 1530s book called How to Remove or Lose Hair from Anywhere on the Body, 
They created basically an early version of Nair. The recipe was, and I quote, to boil together a solution of one pint of arsenic and an eighth of a pint of quicklime in a hot room, smear the medicine over the area, and when the skin feels hot, to wash quickly with hot water so the flesh doesn't come off. So, melting flesh sounds phenom. I'm definitely down for that. Anyways, it seems as if back then, less pubic hair was a sign of wealth, cleanliness, and class. But what did they do with the hair post-scraping, melting, and pulling is a little bit different than our traditional wash-it-down-the-drain method. In Britain in the 18th century, ladies of class would typically gift their pubes to their lover as a sexy souvenir. Men would sometimes wear it in their hats. The president of a sex appreciation club called the Beggar's Benison supposedly wore a wig made entirely from pubic hair, specifically made from King Charles II's many mistresses, until it was stolen and made the trophy of a new sex club where members had to kiss the wig and contribute to its growing fullness. Who is to say what the women thought of this, but back then nobody thought women had opinions, so nobody thought to ask. We can thank Charles Darwin in general for hair removal popularity as survival of the fittest and natural selection come into play here. Us as humans, or homo sapiens, specifically have less body hair than our antecedents. Did I say that right? You know, the cave people, the Neanderthals, the monkeys in general. So body hair became a question of competitive selection, and by the early 1900s, upper and middle class white American women associated smooth skin with a desirable femininity. We also have the fashion industry to thank for this becoming a trend, as hemlines rose, revealing hairy legs, and sleeveless garments became a thing. The first advertisements for women's hair removal started in 1914, with the first women's razor coming onto the market in 1915. In an advertisement in Harper's Bazaar, they stated, Completely bare underarms were a necessity to show off completely bare arms. Other ads promoted their razors with slogans like, no need to be embarrassed, and are you going to permit unsightly hair on your face, arms, underarms, and limbs to spoil the freedom which awaits you at the beach? And classy ladies all shave their armpits. So it became shameful to have excessive body hair, and it was considered unladylike to have armpit hair at this point in time. As World War II shortages left nylon a rare commodity, Many women had to go bare-legged, and by 1964, 98% of American women were routinely shaving their legs. It wasn't until 1946 when the invention of the bikini and Hugh Hefner coming onto the scene with Playboy models who presented clean-shaven in sexy lingerie, and these women became the ideal look. In a 2010 study of Playboy magazine centerfolds from 1953 to 2007, they showed their carpets getting progressively smaller and eventually disappearing. So altogether, at this point, we can blame pornography, pop culture, and great marketing that have taught women that their bushes are unfeminine, unattractive, and unclean. In the 60s and 70s, the sexual and feminine liberation brought the bush back, with the idea that women were only trimming their nether whiskers for the pleasure and prowess of men. During this time, the cool kids were definitely doing the 70s bush look and leaving it all in its natural state. And then came the Brazilian wax by the ladies at Jay's Sisters Salon in Manhattan in 1987, and the news of this practice supposedly traveled mostly by word of mouth, and by the 2000s there was a death of the ladybush once again. Thanks to super low-riding jeans, sex in the city, and wanting to be tan and beach ready all the time. So while it sucks that the majority of these trends stemmed from men and their choices, at least we know Cleopatra would be proud of our modern societal trends. 
As of 2016, a U.S. study found that of adults aged 18 to 65, 84% removed at least some of their hedges compared to the 89% of 2014. So maybe there has been a little bit of a decline. Studies in the U.K., New Zealand, and Australia all had similar results, and most of the results were associated with age and level of sexual activity with the very young and postmenopausal women not partaking in jungle maintenance. So this pube history was a hell of a lot more in-depth than I expected it to be, and turns out our pubic hair has a long history of being tied to our identities and feelings regarding our self-confidence and our sexual selves in general. As I said earlier, whatever landscaping makes you feel comfortable, clean, and happy with your choices is what you should go for. And if you choose to completely mow your lawn, remember that that opens up the door for vajazzling, too, which is every woman's dream, right? To make a landing strip directly to their gold mine out of rhinestones? Get a pink heart or a shining star, or even dedicate your mons to Team Edward or Team Jacob. Whatever makes your little heart sing, I'm sure that there is a vajazzle ready for you. I think you can even buy them on Etsy. I definitely didn't think that my pube talk was going to take that long or go that in-depth, but there is a lot about pube history that we all now have under our belts, and I think it is very much time to move on. The next topic is a very common one with gynecologists, and unfortunately, I think it gets swept under the rug with the public a little bit too much. I'm referring to the fact that the vagina is a self-cleaning organ. Therefore, you don't need to clean it out with special pH-balanced soaps, make it smell fancy with nice fragrances, or anything of the sort. People seem to believe as if the vagina, which is an internal structure capable of handling menstrual blood and stretching or tearing to deliver a baby, is constantly one drop of water or one wrong pair of underwear away from a total meltdown. Think about how many inside parts of your body you actively clean. I can think of one. You brush your teeth. Just like the rest of your body, your vagina needs very little additional help. Vaginas are around handling blood, poop, pee, and semen long before soap was even invented by the Romans. Vaginal discharge is the shedding of the superficial cells of the vagina and the mucus part from the cervix. So the vagina sloughs off everything that it doesn't need and it cleans out the bad bacteria on its own for the most part. These products that promise a fresher, cleaner, or better smelling vagine are completely worthless and actually cause more harm than good in the long run. These products remove the good bacteria that work hard to keep your vagina healthy and free from infection. And if you get rid of those bacteria, you are more likely setting yourself up for an infection. Many of the products also alter the pH of the vagina. Even if they say they are pH balanced, the vagina is supposed to be very acidic with a pH of 3.5 to 4. This keeps the good bacteria happy and the bad bacteria out. It also keeps estrogen in its happy form. Specialized products like Summer's Eve Feminine Wash, which markets itself as formulated for the perfect pH, that so-called perfect pH is 4.5 to 5, which is way more basic than what you need. And when soap mixes with water, it raises the skin pH to 10 or 11, which is way basic. The products have to be more basic so that they don't burn or hurt your skin. So bottom line, you don't need to do feminine douches or use any cleansing products in your vagina other than warm water. Let your body do the rest, and don't let society tell you that you're dirty or unwashed without a specialized product. If you're worried that your vagina smells or feels different or off, it's important to see your doctor, who will be able to let you know if what you're experiencing is normal or if there's something going on that needs attention. For example, 
If you're experiencing a heavier discharge that has a cottage cheesy vibe along with itching, you could have a yeast infection. Studies have shown that 50% of women who believe they have a yeast infection don't actually, so it's important to talk with your doctor before heading to the store for Monistat or other over-the-counter medications. If you're experiencing a thinner-than-normal discharge that has a fishy odor to it, you'll know it when you know it. Trust me. You could have a bacterial infection called bacterial vaginosis, which is as common as yeast infections, and these happen most often when there is a shift in the pH due to the changes in bacterial overgrowth, and the bad guys have now outweighed the good guys. Again, make an appointment with your doctor so that you know what is really going on down there. Speaking of altering the smell or cleanliness of your vagina, I've heard talk of this gut-vagina connection, that if you eat certain things, it'll affect how your vagina smells or tastes, or if you take things out, you can banish unwanted disorders from arising, which is kind of complete crap. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that what you eat doesn't matter, because if you listen to really any of my other episodes, you know that I'm a strong believer in food as medicine, and what you eat definitely affects your microbiome, which affects the flora of your vagina, no doubt about that. But there seems to be a myth floating around like eating pineapple will make my vagina taste and smell sweeter, or if I never eat sugar again, I'll stop having yeast infections. Now that first myth drives me crazy because it's insinuating that the normal smell and taste of a vagina is wrong or dirty and that we need to change something about it. It's really just a new spin on vaginal douching. But let's break this fruity vagina concept down a little bit further. As I mentioned earlier, vaginal discharge is simply a combination of tissue cells from the vaginal wall, cervical mucus, and a very small amount of the fluid that leaks out between cells called transudate fluid. So what composes the smell of the vagina? That would be the good bacteria bugs called lactobacilli and the substances that those break down into. Just like how your skin has a very distinctive smell, mine always smells like peanuts for whatever reason, or your sweaty BO has a distinctive smell as well, these are both due to the breaking down of bacteria on your skin. So everyone's skin, sweat, and vag smell very different. So the question is, can food change the smell or taste of your vagina and therefore vaginal discharge? And the answer is no. In order for this to be the case, we'd have to wave our magic wand and consume a very potent and volatile product that would then have to survive the acidity and complete breakdowns that happen in the GI tract and somehow not let that smell eke out into our skin or urine. If all of those things can happen and there is a substance that could do this, then sure, you could eat it and make your vagina smell and taste like whatever you wanted it to. Now, if you ever cook with garlic or asparagus, you're probably like, wait, but I've definitely smelled garlic on my sweat, and this is true. Garlic is a very volatile ingredient, and it only accumulates in areas with concentrated certain metabolites. And the vagina doesn't concentrate metabolites, so boom, this is why your vagina will never smell like garlic. So the sugar and yeast connection is very well known. High blood sugar does make one more susceptible to infections and yeast infections, of course. But they have studied the amount of sugar that reaches the vagina through diet and have found absolutely nothing. A study was done where women ingested a huge load of sugar equivalent to guzzling two cans of Coke and they found that sugar levels in the vagina didn't change at all, not even in women with a propensity for yeast infections. So if you haven't eaten a piece of cake in years because you're worried about yeast infections, eat the cake. It's not going to change anything. Now, if you're a diabetic, that changes things a little bit. Diabetes happens with persistently elevated blood sugar, 
which is really hard on the kidneys as they have to filter all of the blood in your body. If you have diabetes, you typically will have sugar spilling out into your urine, no matter if you eat cake or not. When you go to wipe, there is a chance that some of that urine with glucose can get into and around the vagina, therefore spreading that sugar, which the yeast that is present on everyone's skin and mucous membranes loves to eat that glucose, and therefore a yeast infection is likely. However, in the healthy adult, this is not the case, so eat the cake if you want the cake. So that's pretty much all that I have for you guys. Thanks for hanging out to this little bit longer than normal episode. Once again, since I was late in getting this episode to you all, I get to gift you guys a little bit extra time of me yapping at you. I really hope that this information has cleared up some period, pube, and overall women's health information for everybody and that you learned something new. Two basic things that I didn't cover that's important for everybody to know for both men and women is that women have three holes. If you didn't know that already, Go look in an anatomy book and you'll see. We have our butthole, vagina, and our urethra. I guess that's something that's not everybody is aware of this day and age. So there you go. And the second thing is that it is true that one boob is always bigger than the other. Even if you can't see a huge difference, it's there. It was really, really fun to hear from all of you about what questions you had and what you were interested in. And I would love to do another like FAQ episode like this as more questions and myths come up in your lives. So please reach out if there is anything that you have questions about. Hopefully you learned something new at some point in this episode, and I love you all, and thanks for listening. You can always DM me on social media at sassyspeculum, or you can email me at sassyspeculum at gmail.com, or if you would prefer to reach out anonymously, you can have that opportunity if you go to www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum. I'm not going to do a top five sassy staples today as everything was kind of everywhere and there wasn't just one topic touched on. So stay tuned for more sassy staples with our next episode. If you haven't already, please rate and review the podcast wherever you are listening to it today. This is super duper helpful and I truly, truly appreciate all of you for sticking around. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.